Well, we are entering today the third week of the Easter season, uh, a season on the church calendar that's 50 days in length, which is nice because it can take that long, but honestly a whole lifetime, uh, to reflect on the question of what does the resurrection mean, and also what does it mean to be a resurrection people. This is the question uh, that the church is supposed to ask itself in this season. What does it mean to be resurrection people? As I said last Sunday, the central event in the Christian story is the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection tells us, you and me, something about our future. And the driving economy of the Jesus story is not a burial, but a rising. Amen? That things are never really over. This is the central story and conviction in the Jesus story, that things are never really at their end, or to quote the great Frederick Buechner, that resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing, or Coldplay when they sing, everything's not lost. So the Easter season helps us in a way to remember the future, which is a strange turn of phrase, but that's what we do. We remember the future. Communion does this. You will hear it today in our liturgy when together we say the words, and you can say these with me if you want, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. It's an escalation of hope. Do you see that? Death, rising, but again. The last words of the Nicene Creed, even, are a kind of shot across the bow of cynicism when it proclaims, We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Easter helps us remember that future, and it's a joyous thing. And again, as I said last week, Easter's not just a future thing. It's a here and now thing. Resurrection is something to look forward to, yes, and it shapes our future, but it is also supposed to reshape our present. And if we allow it to do so, it rearranges our perceptions uh, around how we see the world, how we interact with other people, and how we respond when there is trouble and suffering. Resurrection is supposed to have a word in each of those parts of life. Resurrection is the hope that we carry into every realm of life. It's not just left for this room and church houses all across the world. It is something that we carry with us each and every day into each of the realms of our lives. And so in this way, Easter is kind of an irritant. It irritates our present. It's always reminding us that, again, everything isn't lost. Don't go down that road. Don't find yourself writing people off and writing the world off. Easter doesn't allow that. And again, it keeps laying out the question for us, well, what does it mean to be a resurrection people? Last Sunday, I stood up here and talked about being a hopeful people, opposite of a grumpy people, about being a hopeful people. And since then, since that Sunday, all of us have been reminded that our world continues to break along the fault lines of fear and distrust between people, with multiple shootings, over just silly occurrences, 
like ringing the wrong doorbell or turning around in the wrong driveway, accidentally getting in the wrong car, or a kid's basketball rolling into someone's yard. It breaks my heart. Did it break your heart? Of course. It reminded me of when I was a kid. Like, I still do this. Like, I'll drive through the old neighborhoods getting to, you know, where I'm going, and I'll see a house, and it reminds me of, man, when I was on the cross-country team, and I know you're thinking, really? Uh, <laughs> but I was. And I was like, oh, that's the house we would always stop and get water because they had a hose. You know, this is how we drank in the 80s. Uh, just out of a dirty hose with rust. But no one, like, shot at me. It's crazy. And so even in the midst of talking about we have to be a hopeful people, the world served up some situations to us last week that make it real difficult. And there's this call on the church to be a kind of presence, a certain kind of presence, in a world such as this. And our epistle reading for today has a word to speak to us about this. Now, I want to focus on, again, just one verse in the passages I did last week with that particular passage. But it's verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And he writes, Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, And then here comes the commandment. Love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. If there's an Easter letter in the New Testament, it's 1 Peter. It's aimed at the journey to discover what it means to be a resurrection people in the world. The audience, the original audience of 1 Peter was having a tough go at life. In fact, he begins the letter with the word exile. He addresses his readers as exiles. This is Old Testament language for living a dislocated and unwanted life, away from home, not feeling at home, and then sometimes trying to live in a place that might be hostile to who you are. And so these readers of First Peter, these original readers, uh, they're going through difficult things. And what Peter does is he does not, what he does not do is uh, speak to that or reinforce that, but he speaks a different word to them. What does it mean in your situation to be a resurrection people in such a world that you were living in? And one of the mandates on the church that we find here in this verse, this is very simple, is that we are to be not just a hopeful people, but a loving people. A loving people. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? Seems like something we've all heard in church before. If you grew up in church, you probably did a craft for that. Um, you know, what is that? Something about love your neighbor, but I don't know what it is. It's, a, it's two tongue depressors and some yarn. <laughs> so there's nothing new here. Be a loving people. What else have you got, pastor? Well, uh, I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> Here's the thing, I mean, go home today, it's Sunday, it's a, it's, a, it's a day off, I guess, for you. Take a look at 100 church websites, um, and you will find that most of them say something about their mission being to, quote, love God and love what? People. Almost all of them. Love God, love people. That's their aim. That's what they want to do. 
There's this old legendary tale of two Jewish teachers, one named Shammai, one named Hillel. These are real people. They lived in the days of Jesus. And uh, the story goes that a man came up to them and said, I need you to explain to me, to summarize all of the Torah, the Old Testament, the law, while standing on one leg. Well, the story goes that Shammai dismisses the man and leaves. But Hillel is up for the challenge, and he is quoted as saying, whatever is hateful to you, don't do that to your neighbor. This, he says, is the whole Torah, and the rest is commentary. That's a bold statement. There are 613 different commands in the Old Testament. And this guy goes, whatever you don't like, don't do that to your neighbor. That's all of it. The rest is commentary. The rest is ethics. The rest is working it out in conversation and in real life. It's a beautiful story. Or take the story of when Jesus was asked the question, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Again, we're talking about the 613. It's like asking me, what's the best guitar solo? (laughs) Hmm, I don't know. But they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? So Jesus quotes it. He quotes the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, but the second is like it. Now, they didn't ask for a second. They just asked for the greatest, the heaviest, the weightiest command. And Jesus says, that's the one. Everybody knows that. But the second is like it. And he quotes another Old Testament text that says, and you probably know this, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commands. Love God and love people. And Jesus said the greatest commandment, to love the, Lord, to love the Lord your God. That's obvious. But then he said the second one is like the first one. But it actually doesn't sound anything like the first one except for the word love. It doesn't have any similarities other than love. The objects are different. In the first, the object is our love of God. In the second, the object is our love of for people, how are they the same? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying this, which is a nice subtitle for most of my sermons, one way to understand this is we love God primarily through the way that we love others. That the first commandment to love God is best worked out through the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God is worked out through loving our neighbor. If you only love God but hate your neighbor, your view of God shrinks. In fact, you become a God. But if you open yourself to loving your neighbor, both friend and foe, you begin to learn more about God. There are many ways that we express our love for God in song, in prayer, the way we trust. The list is too long. But when it comes to this issue, what we find more than anything else throughout the Bible is that what God truly desires of us are not our offerings, not our worship songs, uh, not our attempts to be quite religious and please God. 
but that our love for God might show through the way that we love other people. There are so many texts in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, when they go, oh, I hate that song. And I loved all the songs today. I'm not saying that about Garrett. Garrett did a great job. But it gets to the point sometimes in spiritual history and religious history where it only becomes about the things that we do and present to God in a vertical sense. And we have all these great examples of the prophets coming along and saying, God loves that, but what he really wants is mercy from you to your fellow neighbor. He wants justice. He wants loving kindness. And so it's not just the things that we do for God, but our love for God can show itself through the way that we love other people. Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. And again, I feel that we tend to discover more about God when we are practicing love. We, dis- we, we begin to erase what we used to know of God the more that we hate our neighbor. During our 16-month, it might be 18 months, I don't know, uh, COVID shutdown as a church, <laughs> we've been in this building now four years, half of which we weren't in the building. And during that COVID shutdown, uh, I was invited by a friend of mine who works at Christianity Today to come onto a podcast he was doing uh, with another pastor from another state. And the subject of the conversation that I was told was, quote, leading purple churches. Now, as a person who's colorblind, I had no idea what that meant. (laughs) Sounded great. Purple sounds fun. I don't know what that means. But then I was told that purple is the color you get when you mix red and blue. And red and blue are the colors we most often associate with the two main political parties in this country. So, the podcast subject matter was about pastoring churches that had a mix of people in the pews. And I don't know how they did their homework, but they were right about our church. So this is about pastoring churches that have a mix of ideas and leanings and convictions among its people. Fun stuff. Now, I know that it's easy for us, for you and for me to imagine that everyone in this room is on the same page. But as your pastor, I know something that you don't. <laughs> I'm in conversations with so many of you, and it, is, it would blow your mind how actually different you all are. We're not on the same page about this or that. Uh, we do these church lunches and breakfasts and dinners a lot here, and there's a reason for that. I mean, church is, of all things, a table, and... Uh, I think this was last summer, we were having a, an evening where there was dinner, and Lindsay and I were in the kitchen, um, and I was looking out, and I said, hey, Lindsay, check out table two. We don't number the tables, I'm just, you know, acting like a waiter. Um, I said, look over at table two, and there was this group of people at table two, and we were both started laughing and smiling, because it was like, if, if all of those people at that table actually knew what everybody at that table felt about certain things, 
they wouldn't sit together. But there they are, ignorantly laughing, <laughs> sharing a meal. And we, we didn't break it up, of course. We just sort of smiled and even laughed. Like, look how ignorant they are. <laughs> now, some of you are like, what table was I at? Like, what? <laughs> You're looking around the room, like, who in this room, you know? Uh, Bishop Michael B. Curry says these words, they're beautiful. To love my brothers and sisters does not mean that we have to agree, but maybe agreeing to love is the greatest agreement. That's the trick, to love one another deeply from the heart to be a loving people. Our tendency is towards agreement, which usually means you agree with me. We want people to be like us, whether we voice that or not, it's just natural. And when there are differences, the act of love can become labored. But it is possible, I want to say, it is possible to love without results. Sometimes we love or we feign love to get results. But in the Bible, we find this interesting idea that there's a, it's possible to love without needing results. It's possible to love others who never change. It's possible. Ask any parent. It's possible. And the kind of love that God asks of us is the kind that wants the best for others. It doesn't mean we have to be friends. It doesn't mean we have to agree. But at the heart of it, what we want is the best for others. It's not driven by revenge but by renewal, by resurrection. And because this, uh, because the love Peter is talking about in our text, uh, it's not the kind of love that has an agenda other than to love in and of itself. There are multiple words, lots of words that the Greek language uses for love. But in this text, Peter uses a word that's a form of the word agape. And agape love was this, in the ancient world, this kind of pipe dream kind of love. The kind that no one can really do. Because it transcended all the things we normally require for love, which is that someone needs to be lovable. But this sort of love, this agape love, is a stubborn, steadfast, boneheaded kind of love. It just remains present in spite of anything and everything. When John wrote the words, for God so loved the world, this is the word that he used. It's the kind of love that God has for you and for me, for the whole world. It's the kind of love that we are asked to practice, to get better at, or at least just to try. And if I may leave our text for a moment for another text, because the Bible is a conversation, and it often rhymes. Notice what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Maybe you've heard this before. God is what? Love. I've put all the Greek up there for you, so you can catch the pattern. You're smart people. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. 
In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no what? Fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, for years, I read this only as a text only about God's love. But it is actually about the way we love. It is based in the love of God, this agape love. But the mandate here is tough. It's that we practice the same sort of thing. And at the center of it all is this wonderful phrase that there is no fear in that kind of love. If we're talking about love, agape love is a thing, as a type of love. John says, in that love, fear doesn't exist. Perfect love, that type of love, extinguishes fear. But the one who is still struggling with fear, what's the fear? To love. They're not perfected in that yet. There's still work to be done. There is no fear in love. And what I find quite common in my own life is that when I'm approaching that kind of love with someone, there can be fear. Because again, we, we often love people with condition. But when I'm even approaching this agape kind of love, there's a fear. And when there is fear, and maybe you do this too, we retreat and settle for the lesser loves that are available. The more conditional kinds that allow us to keep holding on to some sense of control. But agape love is the kind of love where fear doesn't breathe. Because there's nothing really to lose. To love in this way is a kind of surrender to be swept up into the love of God. And so Peter commands us to love one another deeply from the heart. I've said this from this stage many times, but hate is not working. I mean, it's working, but not in the ways that we really want that to work. It doesn't create change. It doesn't solve problems. It does nothing. And worse, as people of faith, it ushers us away from the love of God. And so pastorally, the question for us today is, is it possible to imagine a life where hate is no longer an option? Could you do that? Just think about it for a moment. I know your head will go, because we all have a list, you know, people's names. But what if it just wasn't an option? And that's where fear comes in, doesn't it? No, you, you have to hold people accountable. You have to tell people when they're wrong. Okay, fine. But what if hate was not an option? Does that scare you? It might. But the scriptures would tell us that kind of fear doesn't live in the love of God. It's possible to love without any results. And so the last word today um, 
for you and for me is from your pastor to you and from you back to me. Let's focus on that. That though the world outside these doors can pull us in so many different directions to take sides to this and that and the other, let's commit ourselves and always recommit ourselves to the kind of love that doesn't do that. And that in this room, at least, I say this a lot, church is just practice. We're practicing heaven in the here and now. And so we can practice that. We can be a loving people. Amen? Martin Luther King Jr., I think it's in your bulletin, said these words, I am convinced that men hate each other because they fear each other. Do you see where he's basing this? They fear each other because they don't know each other. And they don't know each other because they don't communicate with each other. And they don't communicate with each other because they are separated from each other. I think if anything breaks God's heart, it's that when people who claim to follow him are afraid to love.